Well, hey, uh, good morning again, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And it's great to have you here with us as we are in week two of a series that we have entitled Equipped. Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, what we're doing with this series is we're just recognizing that life is full of challenges. And if ever there was a time where that was true, we're, we're in that time right now. And we're just, we're wrestling with this idea of when, when we face challenges in life, how do we meet those challenges and meet them well? Because as people who are following Jesus, that's something we want to do. It's been my experience that, that people who are following Jesus, when they meet challenges, they don't want to fall victim to the brokenness that surrounds us. They, 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 they want to make sure that their faith makes a difference for good even in the midst of the challenges that they're wrestling with. They want to make sure that they live this life in such a way that it prepares them for the next life. But it's not hard as we're really just staring a challenge in the face to, to, to go, okay, this is what I want to do, but is it really possible for me to live this way? And the good news of this series is that the answer to that question is yes. Yes, it is. And so last week we kind of looked at a bigger passage of scripture from the book of 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. And we saw in this larger passage of scripture that Peter is telling us that God himself wants to equip you and me to, to face the challenges that come our way. And to do so with excellence. And so we kind of broke down this bigger passage of scripture last week. And we saw that in, in, verses, um, in verses 3 through 4, Peter tells us that God's divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. For God's divine power has given us everything we need to follow Jesus well. Or, or Peter will tell us in, those, in verses 3 and 4 that God's divine power has given us everything we need to escape the corruption of the world. In other words, we don't have to fall victim to the brokenness around us. And then we saw how in verses 8 and 9, Peter tells us that it's possible for us to avoid being ineffective and unproductive and blind and forgetful. In other words, our faith really can make a difference for good. And then we saw how in verses 10 and 11, Peter was saying to us, hey, you can do things that will, that will confirm your calling and election. You can do things that will position you in such a way so as to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. In other words, we can live this life in such a way that it gets us ready for the next. In this chunk of scripture, Peter is saying to us, hey, it's possible for regular people like you and me to meet the challenges that we face and to do so well that God himself wants to equip us to do that. And so the question then becomes, how? How is God equipping you and me to meet these challenges? And that's where verses 5, 6, and 7 come in. Where Peter says to us, he says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness knowledge, and to your knowledge, self-control, and to your self-control, perseverance, and to your perseverance, godliness, and to your godliness, mutual affection, and to your mutual affection, love. 
See, Peter is telling us to make every effort to add these virtues to our faith. Because the cultivation of these virtues in our lives is the means by which God is equipping you and me to meet the challenges that we face and to meet them well. And so what we're doing is really simple. Each week we're taking one of these virtues, we're defining it together, we're kind of rolling around in an illustration, a real life example of what that virtue looks like, and then we're just going, hey, how do we cultivate this virtue in our lives? And so as we continue this week, we're going to look at the virtue of knowledge today. But before we do, we're going to take a minute and pray and invite God to help us with this. So would you pray with me, please? Father, just as we begin today, we want to say thank you uh, for good things that you're doing right here in our church family. Thank you uh, for the birth of Donan to Mandy and to Shun. Thank you that that child is safe, that he is healthy, that mom is safe and healthy. We just pray you would bless their family. And thank you again just for this new life in their home and in our church family. Father, just as we continue as a nation, as individuals, as a church to struggle with everything that's going on in our culture right now. God, help us as this has been so polarizing. God, we pray for our leaders that you would please give them wisdom in how to perceive moving forward. God, help us as individuals in a church just to be thoughtful to be kind as we discuss this with one another. God, help us just to be thoughtful and be kind with what we post on social media. To stay away from the inflammatory things, to stay away from ugly things, to have more sense than to, to say something stupid in response to what somebody else has posted because we have keyboard courage. To try and let our faith Make a difference for good in how we interact with one another and the world around us. Father, help us please, just as we look at your word today, to see your truth and what it means to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk about knowledge. And as we do, I, I would just ask you, okay, what comes to mind for you with this term knowledge? Because oftentimes what will happen is we will uh, equate knowledge to, to what it means to be smart. We, when we think of knowledge, we think of IQ. We tend to limit it to, okay, how many facts can I cram between my ears? How many advanced degrees can I secure? Uh, you know, who, who, who's the smartest person in the room? You know, we, we limit knowledge to just something like IQ. Here's the problem with that. While, while we oftentimes do that in our culture today, when Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith knowledge, Peter has something more in mind than just something academic. Now, th now there is an academic part to the knowledge that Peter's going to talk to us about today. 
There's, that, that's part of what knowledge is, but that's not all that knowledge is. Knowledge is, to some extent, it is academic, but there's a whole other aspect to it, at least this knowledge that Peter is talking about. And so it's possible to be someone who is incredibly intelligent and yet still lack the kind of knowledge that Peter's talking about here. We actually get a great real-life example of that in the life story of Dr. Rosalind Pickard. Dr. Rosalind Pickard. If you're, not, if you're not familiar with Rosalind, she is the person who is um, credited with starting an entire new branch of engineering science known as effective computing. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I, I read a little bit about it, and I, it didn't take me long to figure out. I'm not smart enough to explain that to you, all right? But it, it, she started this branch of science. She is a well-respected voice in the scientific community with modern technology. She's one of those people who is crazy smart, just a crazy smart kind of individual. But she's also an individual who has the kind of knowledge in her life that Peter's talking about. And it's a knowledge that she cultivated over time as she journeyed from atheism to faith in Christ. When Rosalind was in high school, she decided she was going to be an atheist. In her own words, she decided she was going to be an atheist because I believed that smart people didn't need religion. She considered, Rosalind considered people who believed in God to be uneducated, to be simpletons, to, to really just be small-minded people. Even in high school, she, she led debates in favor of atheistic evolution. She just kind of wrote off anybody who, who believed in God. And she just, just thought, you know, if, if, you're, if you're an intelligent person, you, you've put this religion thing to the side. Now, while Rosalind was in high school, she had that idea challenged. She, she took this job babysitting for a family. And, and the, the family, you, you had a doctor and his wife and their kids. And she would babysit for them. And every, every night when she would babysit for them, the parents would come home and they would pay her. And then they'd invite her to church. And she struggled with that because prior to, to, to engaging with this family, she was sure. If you believed in God, you went to church, you're, you're uneducated, you're small-minded. But this couple... They weren't uneducated, and they were really intelligent. They were sharp individuals, and she just didn't know what to do with that. Now, Rosalind managed to avoid all their invitations to church, but she eventually accepted an invitation to read the Bible, specifically the book of Proverbs. And here's what she said after reading the book of Proverbs. She said, when I first opened the Bible... I expected to find phony miracles, made-up creatures, assorted goggly goop. To my surprise, though, Proverbs was full of wisdom. I had to pause and, 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 and think while I was reading. Rosalind, she, she continued to read after Proverbs. She read through the entire Bible, and, and it intrigued her more than she ever could have imagined. She, she talked about having this strange sense of being spoken to. And it, and it left her wondering, could, could there maybe be a God after all? So after completing the Bible once, Rosalind read through it a second time. And it left her even more conflicted. 
She, she said, I didn't want to believe in God, but I still felt this peculiar sense of love and this presence that I just couldn't ignore. In college, she had a friend invite her to church, and, and she went this time. And, and when she went to church, she found her understanding of the Bible to grow. And eventually, Rosalind committed her life to Christ. After doing so, this is what she said. She said, my whole world dramatically changed. It was as, it was as if a flat, black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. Yet, I lost nothing of my urge to seek new knowledge. In fact, I felt emboldened to ask tough questions about how the world works. Today, Dr. Pickard is the professor of media arts and sciences at a little school you may have heard of, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's the, the professor of media arts and sciences at MIT. And this is what she says now. She says, I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. See, when Peter says, add to your faith, knowledge. This is what Peter is talking about. He has in mind this concept that, that captures something that is both academic and relational in nature. It's both. The word that we have translated is knowledge. The, the, New, the New Testament uses this word in both ways. Like on one hand, the, the New Testament will use this word that we have translated as knowledge to describe understanding complex theological ideas, understanding God's very nature, understanding deep spiritual principles. But then the New Testament will also times, at times, it will condemn reducing knowledge to just an acquisition of facts. It'll condemn reducing knowledge to just a list of do's and don'ts. And then the New Testament will use this word that we have translated as knowledge to describe a personal knowledge of God. To, de to describe engaging Jesus relationally. See, with the New Testament, what, what, what Peter has in mind here when he says, make every effort to add to your faith knowledge, it is not either academics or relationship. Instead, it is both something that is academic and relational. When Peter tells us to add knowledge to our lives, what he has in mind is this. It's, it's a, a proper understanding of who God is and how he has called us to live so that we can engage him relationally as we live into that calling. What Peter has in mind, again, let me say that again. What he has in mind is that we're going to develop a proper understanding of who God is and how he has called us to live. And we develop that understanding so that we can engage God relationally as we live into that call. 
Now, when I think of people who really just illustrate this idea of knowledge for us, one of the people who comes to mind for me is the Old Testament priest and teacher, a man named Ezra. Now, Ezra's life is recorded for us in a couple of different Old Testament books. One of them is the book of Ezra, the book that bears his name. And in Ezra chapter 7, there's this passage where Ezra is, is talked about. And the way he's talked about, he's talked about adding to his life knowledge as Peter means for us to understand it. Let's look at this passage together from Ezra chapter 7. It says this, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in August of that year. He had arranged to leave Babylon in April, April 8th, the first day of the new year, and he arrived in Jerusalem on August 4th, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ezra, it chronicles the challenges that Ezra faced in his life, in his time. The challenges that he faced as he sought to lead the Jewish people in rebuilding the temple again in Jerusalem. And in, in chapter 7 here, you see the first challenge that Ezra faced in that whole temple rebuilding project. He's got to get people from Babylon, where they have been living, back to Israel, back to Jerusalem in order to begin to build that temple. And basically that challenge means he's got this large, conspicuous group of people laden with valuables who he's got to somehow get 900 miles, across 900 miles of unpoliced desert wilderness back to Jerusalem again. It is a 905-month-long journey that he's engaged in. All kinds of things can go wrong with this. You know, you've got bandits on the roads, you've got the terrain, you've got the time, you've got the distance. Just huge challenges just in this first phase of getting the temple rebuilt. Huge challenge, I've got to get people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Now our passage tells us that God is helping Ezra to meet this challenge. And I don't know if you caught it, but it tells us why. We read that God's gracious hand was on Ezra because he had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people. See, I would contend that, that what Ezra is described doing here, how he is interacting with his Bible, th this is Ezra adding knowledge to his life, the kind of knowledge that Peter is talking to us about in our passage from 1 Peter. That, that God is equipping Ezra to meet this first challenge as Ezra, as Ezra adds knowledge to his life. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of unpack together what it was that Ezra was doing to cultivate knowledge in his life and what it is that we can do, the very same things that we can do that Ezra was doing to cultivate knowledge in our lives. So here we go. First thing Ezra does, we're told to cultivate knowledge, is Ezra studied the law of the Lord. In other words, Ezra studied his Bible. Now, here's the fun thing about this. Bible study is one of these phrases, one of these terms that we kind of throw around at church a lot. 
And very rarely do we clearly define what we mean by that. So what does it mean for you and me to study our Bible? Now, if I'm being intellectually honest, there are a number of different ways that we could study our Bible. They're all legitimate. What I want to do, though, is make sure you walk away with something practical today. So I'm going I'm to talk to you about a, a Bible study method called the SOAP Bible study method. You, uh, everybody remembers SOAP, right? SOAP was this thing like prior to shelter and stay, like before you gave up and you just, you you started wearing sweatpants and pajamas every day, like prior to the time when you just quit showering, soap was that weird substance you used in the shower in the bathroom there, right? Everybody remembers soap, okay? The soap method is different. It has nothing to do with that kind of soap. It's an acronym that's, you know, four letters, four activities that if I engage in these four activities, I will have successfully studied my Bible. So, First letter in the word soap is? S. That is correct. Very good. Not a trick question. All right. So first letter is S. And S stands for scripture. And the idea with this is that I'm going to take some time and just read a portion of my Bible. Now, by read, there's some things I mean and don't mean. I don't mean like you're going to read your Bible like maybe you and I read some of the material that we were assigned in college. I don't know if you ever had this happen during my undergraduate and graduate work. Every now and then I would get a professor who would assign just an obscene amount of reading. It was like the number of pages they assigned for their class somehow made their class legitimate. It meant they were, they were a true, gritty, real kind of professor because they gave you more to read than you could possibly get done, right? And, and what I really loved is every now and then you'd get a professor who would assign this obscene amount of reading and then they would make part of your grade dependent upon you reporting that you read what they read. Even though all this stuff that they assigned for you to read never made its way on to a test and you didn't need any of it to write any of the papers for the class. So I would struggle with this because on one hand like in college I'm trying to follow Jesus and I don't want to just flat out lie and say I've read something I've never laid my eyeballs on. At the same time though I got a limited amount of time and mental capacity to to be spending time reading stuff that isn't going to help me get anything done in the class. And so oftentimes what I would do is I would read that material My eyeballs would go over all the pages. I'd be speed reading through it, but I was not really comprehending or fully engaged with what I was reading. That is not what we're talking about here. The idea with S is I'm going to turn all the other stuff off. The TV gets turned off. The computer gets turned off. The radio gets turned off. The phone gets turned off. The tablet, whatever else. I'm going to duct tape the kids in a room. And I'm just going to sit down me and my Bible, and I'm just going to focus in on this to read and to, to read to comprehend. I'm going to start with yes. Next, I'm going to move to O. And O simply stands for observation. As I'm reading this, I'm going to make some observations. I'm going to maybe even write them down. I'm going to start with some simple observations. Things like, okay, what's going on in what I'm reading? Why is this happening? What does this mean? How, how, does this, how does what I'm reading relate to the, the rest of what's in the chapter around it? How does what I'm reading in this particular chapter relate to the rest of the book from the Bible that I'm reading from? I'm going to make some basic observations. And then maybe I'll even make some more in-depth observations. 
And with the in-depth observations, I'm going to go after things like, you know, who wrote this particular book of the Bible? When was it written? Who was it written to? Are there any cultural cues here that I need to be aware of? Are there any words that I need to define more clearly? How would, how would what I'm writing be understood by the original audience it was written to? I'm going to make some observations. Now, with, this, with the more basic observations, I can probably just sit down, me and my Bible, open it up and make those basic observations. With the more in-depth observations, I might need some tools. You know, I, I, it might be helpful to have a Bible dictionary or a Bible commentary for the book of the Bible that I'm reading in. Now, those tools are the kind of things that people who are in ministry tend to have collected over the years. It's like my hammer and my saw if I'm a pastor. But you might be sitting out there going, well, I, I didn't collect any of that stuff. I, I don't even know where to begin to get my hands on that. And here's the good news. If you have access to the internet, you have access to those tools today because there are all kinds of websites that for free will make available Bible dictionaries, Bible commentaries, and other Bible study tools. They're available online for free. Like Bible Gateway is one of those uh, websites. You can go to BibleGateway.com and for free you get access to some basic Bible dictionaries and commentaries. If you want to pay a, a monthly subscription, you can get access to some more in-depth kind of study tools. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read. There's S, O, I'm going to make some observations. And then A is for application. Real simple. I'm just going, okay, I read this. I thought about what it all means. How does this apply to my life? How do I begin to live into what I'm reading about? And then I wrap it all up with P. I'm going to pray. God, I'm reading this. This is what it means. This is what it looks like in my life. God, give me the strength. Give me the wisdom. Give me the courage. Give me the grace to actually apply what I've been learning and reading about. Real simple. Soap. Now, as we talk about this, there's probably part of you that's gone, okay, that sounds really academic. And that's okay. Because again, we said, part of what knowledge is is academic. But again, it's not exclusively meant to be academic. It's also meant to be relational in nature. For example, th this word that we have translated in, in our original passage from Ezra, where it says that Ezra studied the law of the Lord, there's another passage that uses that exact same Hebrew word. It's from Jeremiah 29, where God says this, he says, you will seek me and you will find me. When you search for me, when you study for me with all your heart. So sure, there's an academic piece to this. But this exact same word, God is using it with these personal pronouns to help us understand. You're not just looking for facts about me. You're trying to discover me personally. It, it, this, this isn't just about head knowledge. You're going to search for me with your whole heart. Because this is a heart thing as well. The idea here is I'm going to meet the God of this book personally. In the pages of this book. And as I do, it does something to me. It impacts me. It even changes me. 
we see some of this in the other book that talks about Ezra in his life. Again, we said, you know, Ezra's life is discussed in a couple of Old Testament books. The first one is the book of Ezra. The second one is the book of Nehemiah. And in, in Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10, you kind of see this thing play itself out. This academic, relational thing come together and it impacts people on a deep kind of level. Nehemiah chapter 8. We, we, we find Nehemiah teaching the people. They, they, they kind of have this open air preaching kind of session. They set up this platform, this soapbox for Nehemiah to get up on top of. And we're told that Nehemiah taught the book of the law from daybreak till noon. Now let's just stop and think about that. Nehemiah preached his sermon from 6 a.m. to noon. I don't want to see anything on the connection cards that I preached too long today, all right? All right? Six-hour sermon on Nehemiah's part. And we're told, that Nehemiah, and that he's preaching a sermon, that he read from the book of the law. And that him and the, the folks who are helping him teach, that they made clear the giving. And, and they, 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 they made it clear and they gave meaning to it. So that all the people understood what was being read. Nehemiah and, and the Levites, they're basically doing the soap method with the people here. And we're told that as they do this, Something happens inside of the people. We read, Then Nehemiah and the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, Hey, hey, this is a day that is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the, all the people had been weeping as they were listening to the words of the law. Nehemiah said to them, no, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and, and send some to those who have nothing. This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, this day is holy. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and celebrate with joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So, so Nehemiah does the soap thing with the people. And the first response they have is to weep and mourn. And they're weeping and mourning, not just because it was a six-hour-long sermon. No, they are weeping and mourning because as they meet God, they see God for who he is. And it causes them to see themselves for who they are. They see God in his holiness. And it causes them to see their brokenness and their sin. And how far they have fallen short of who God has called them to be. And it just breaks something inside of them. There's a mourning that goes with that. Like, I can remember when I first became a Christian. And after becoming a Christian, I had an opportunity to go and spend a summer up at Bear Lake Bible Camp. And towards the end of the summer, there was this speaker who one day in chapel, he just, he unpacked in a way that I had never heard before what it meant to, to live into sexuality as God had called us to. 
And I can remember after chapel, you know, they, they asked us all to, you know, go get a, a quiet, you know, place where you can be alone and just kind of think about what we've been hearing. And I remember sitting on the, the back steps of the dining hall and just thinking about my past and where I had been and who God had, had designed me to be and how far I had fallen short of that and just being broken by that. And just mourning over what I had done to myself and what I had done to other people and what it was going to cost me, the kind of price I was going to have to pay moving forward. Sometimes when we really meet God in the pages of this book, it's a difficult thing. Because we see him for who he is. And it causes us to see ourselves for who we are and how we've fallen short of that. The people experience that. But it's not all they experience. On one hand, there's mourning and weeping. And then on the other hand, you have the very opposite. There's celebration. There's joy. And the celebration and the joy, that happens. That happens because the people, they, they also see that God is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of forgiveness. They meet a God who gives them mercy. He doesn't give them what their sin deserves. And, and they meet a God of forgiveness. A God who can cleanse them of their sin. And they meet a God of grace. A God who's going to pour goodness into their lives in ways that they have not earned. In ways that they simply don't deserve. And so sometimes when we read the Bible and we really dig into it, we meet God there and there's this holy God and it causes us to mourn because we are not. But there's also a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness and there's celebration and joy as well. And then the third thing that you see the people do there in the book of Nehemiah kind of takes us back around full circle to our original passage from Ezra. If you remember, we read that, that you know, as Ezra's, Ezra's trying to add knowledge to his life, the first thing Ezra does is he studies his Bible. But the second thing that Ezra does is he obeys his Bible. We read, Ezra determined to study and obey the law of the Lord. And, and that's what you see happen with the people there in, in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 8, they, they, they're like, hey, we're going to really just sit down. Ezra's going to preach. They hear, they discover, they meet God in the pages of, of, of that book. They meet God in that sermon. And, and they're convicted. They, they just, they see this is who God is and I fall short of that. And there's mourning and weeping. And then there's rejoicing because they see God in his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. They're so grateful for that. And then in chapters 9 and 10, you see the people respond with obedience. They recognize this is where our lives have fallen short of God's call. We are so grateful for his forgiveness. We're going to work to live in obedience to God moving forward. And here's why. Obedience is always a natural outcome to genuine repentance and gratitude. Obedience is the natural outcome to a life of genuine repentance and genuine gratitude. This is something we get. Even if we haven't articulated this in our minds, this is something we all understand. 
Let me try and illustrate this for, for you with a story. And, and let me just say on the front end that the, the story is kind of built out of some, some facts, but the, 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 the overarching themes of the story are, are made up here. So before you send me a nasty connection card about this mean thing that I'm going to tell you I did to Pastor Laura, I didn't really do the mean thing to Pastor Laura, all right? So here we go. Let, let's, uh, we're gonna, you're going to use your imagination here. So let's just imagine, if you would, that I have a mischievous streak about me. And I know that's, that's not the mic you know, but again, you're, you're using your imaginations here. So imagine I have a mischievous streak about me. And, and imagine way back when, when we actually were allowed in the church building and, and we used the offices here, that I would bring canned chicken with me for lunch every now and again which is something I really did. And so I'd bring my canned chicken and I would open up my canned chicken and every time I opened up my canned chicken, Pastor Laura would be like, oh, that just stinks. That smells to high heavens. Oh, do you have your stinky chicken again? Every time I'm just trying to have lunch, Pastor Laura is just bagging on my lunch and calling it stinky chicken. So imagine, and again, just use your imagination here. Imagine that I, I would be compelled to seek some kind of retribution against Pastor Laura for banging on my lunch like this. And so Pastor Laura goes on vacation for a week. And the first day she is on vacation, I bring in two cans of stinky chicken, one to eat and one to teach her a lesson with. And so I open that second can of stinky chicken and I turn towards Pastor Laura's office, and as I march into her office, I sing this song. Stinky chicken, oh stinky chicken, what are they feeding you? Stinky chicken, oh stinky chicken, it's not your fault. Now, if you're a fan of the show Friends, you get that joke, all right? If you're not, if you're not a fan of Friends, you're like, what just happened? If you, if you watch Friends, you know that's really good material there, right? So I, I go into her, her office and I put my open can of stinky chicken on her desk and I walk out of her office, close the door behind me, and we leave that open can of stinky chicken in her office the entire week. We just let the smells just permeate the furniture and the carpet and the walls so that when she comes back from, from vacation, she steps into her office and just is assaulted with the smell of stinky chicken. And imagine that when she does, Pastor Laura just automatically assumes that it was me who did it, which is completely unfair because Pastor Eric just as easily could have done it as me, even though it was really me who did it. And so she just assumes it was me. And then just we're, we're imagining here, imagine Pastor Laura has an emotional response to the stinky chicken. She gets upset. She even, imagine, she even cries and she confronts me and tells me, this is not okay. This, is, this isn't funny, this is mean. Like you have hurt my feelings, you have crossed the line with this one. And as she's weeping, imagine that like it clicks for me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I, I took this too far. And I'm like, hey, I'm really sorry. You're right, that, 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 I can see how that just felt mean-spirited. I thought it was gonna be funny, but clearly it was not will you forgive me please? And imagine that Pastor Laura forgives me and, and doesn't even try and seek any kind of revenge. And we just, we just move forward from there. And I'm really grateful for her, for her gracious response to my apology. Now, 
If my repentance and my gratitude are sincere, what am I going to do the next time Pastor Laura goes on vacation? You're expecting, like, I'm going to get flowers or something for her office. If, but if, if the next time she goes on vacation, I'm all like, stinky chicken, oh, stinky chicken. You're, you're, you're like, no, that's not sincere. Because we all understand. We all get it. A change in behavior, a change in behavior is the natural outcome to genuine repentance and gratitude. And that's what you see in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. Nehemiah writes down, he says, the rest of the people, you get all the priests, the Levites, you know, the, the moms, the dads, the kids, anybody who's old enough to understand, they come together and catch the last sentence here. It says, they solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands and regulations and decrees of the Lord. And then you watch this unfold in chapters 9 and 10. They go, hey, here are all the areas where we had not been following God. And this is what it's going to look like in these areas of our lives to get this straight. And then you see them live into that in the rest of the book. And do they get it perfectly? No. If you know the book of Nehemiah, no, they don't get it perfect. But you see a change in trajectory. You see a change in behavior. They do something different. As we do this soap thing, as we meet God in the pages of the Bible, and it impacts our lives, we, we see him in his holiness, we repent of our sin, we celebrate his mercy and his grace and his goodness. The, the natural response for us should be what Ezra did and what the people did. It should, be, it should be to go, okay, what is it going to look like for me to obey this? To more fully live into who God has called me to be. Because obedience, obedience is just a natural outcome to genuine repentance and gratitude. All right, one last thing Ezra did and then we'll finish. Ezra studies his Bible. Ezra obeys his Bible and then Ezra shared his Bible with others. Again, Ezra determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. Ezra, Ezra and, and the people, they were surrounded by a culture that was forever trying to get them to think and behave in ways that were different than what God had called them to. And yet Ezra decided, you know what, no, I'm going to study this thing. I'm going to obey this thing. And then as I'm gifted, I am going to share the truth that I am learning with others. If we're, going to, if we're going to cultivate knowledge in our lives, that's the final thing we need to do. Now, I get that some of you are going, well, I can't do that. I can't preach. I can't preach a six-hour sermon. I don't, I don't know how you guys get up there and like blow hot air about Jesus for 35 minutes. I can't do that. And here's the good news. You don't have to share God's truth the way that Ezra did. You just need to share God's truth the way that God has gifted you to do that. Now, maybe, maybe you're gifted to preaching. That's the way you're going to do that. Maybe, maybe you're gifted to lead a small group. 
Maybe that's the way God has gifted you to share his truth. And if that's you, ooh, Pastor James would love to talk to you about that. Right now, Pastor James and ADC, they're working to put together the schedule of small groups and growth groups that are going to be meeting this summer. If you are interested, you think maybe you might be willing to, able to lead a small group or a growth group, please put that in your digital connection card. Pastor James would love to get a hold of you and talk to you about that. Maybe you're best gifted to share God's truth just as you're having conversations with people, to work that into those conversations in a natural way. Maybe the best way you can share God's truth is to live it. Because our actions speak way louder than our words do. You can share God's truth simply by pushing the share button in your Facebook feed. Whatever way you're gifted, that's the way you do that. So Ezra, he added knowledge to his life. And he did so by studying his Bible, obeying his Bible, and then sharing the truth of his Bible with others. Church, this is a time where life is full of challenges. And, and as people who are trying to follow Jesus, we want to meet those challenges well. And the good news is we can. God is equipping us to do that. And one of the ways that God's equipping us to do that is by adding to our faith knowledge. So may you make every effort to study your Bible, to meet God in the pages of that book. May you make every effort to obey it, to, con to, to just continually grow in conforming your life to God's truth. And may you make every effort to share that truth with others. Would you pray with me, please? Father, help us, please, and the challenges that we face to do so in a way that honors you. God, give us strength. God, give us grace. God, help us to cultivate knowledge. God, help us to be a people who carve out some time to just get alone and to hear your truth, your encouragement, your perspective, your direction on the challenges that we face. God, give us strength and wisdom and courage to live in a way that reflects that truth that you're revealing to us. And God, help us to be the kind of people who share that with others who are struggling in the challenges that they are facing as well to be people who are beacons of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.